it was a, it was a good game, but it went all the way to midnight, and so if you stayed up and watched it, you didn't get much sleep. <clears throat> um, so today, what I want to talk about is um, the real church, and so. What's happened over the past few weeks, we've seen a lot of events that have transpired as far as Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma. Um, we've seen a lot of earthquakes. We've also seen, you know, uh, North Korea, they're developing the capability of a, a nuclear warhead that can maybe strike the United States. And we've also seen, you know, Islamic terrorism still in Europe and other parts of the Middle East. And um, a lot of people have actually come up to me, even in the schools, and People I know, and they said, you think this is the end of the world? You know, is this the second coming of Christ? Is it imminent? Is it right before us? And while I'm not going to read all of Matthew 24, and this is not a, a scripture based on the second coming of Christ, but it has led to a lot of conversations, which I would call real church. And so, um, you know, there's going to be signs of his return, obviously. And no man knows the day or hour we see in Matthew 24. And it says, you must be ready all the time. And I think of the football coach, uh, Vince Lombardi, who, you know, the trophy for the Super Bowl is named after him. And he said, he always had a good quote. He said, a football game normally comes down to three or four big plays. And I think if we, you look at any big game, especially like the UT game last night, you can see that, you know, three or four big plays could have changed the whole outcome of the game. And so you always have to be ready every single play because you never know when that play could occur. And I think the same thing could be said here about the second coming of Christ is you must always be ready. It's not like, oh, all this stuff's happening. Now I need to start going to church and getting right with, with Christ. Uh, let's always be ready. But like I said, this message today is not about the rapture. And though these events have led me to have real church with many people, I'm not going to sit up here and predict when I think Christ will come. Um, but these questions have come up in school, even going to HEB. Even I have a scouting buddy, um, Coach Woolley, he's not here today, but we um, talk about a lot of this stuff on the way to scout. And so in those moments, I call it real church, and you say, well, what do you mean by real church? And what, what I want to go over before, before I get to it is what real church is not. Real church is not a physical location, right? It's like this building, like up on the hill, wherever, that's, it's not a location, it's it's not some point you can pinpoint. Maybe in the Old Testament it was, but nowadays church is in us. And so church is not a certain day of the week. It's not Sunday or Wednesday. Church is not you being here listening to even me or listening to somebody talk. That's not church. And church is not the millions we spend on buildings and multi-million dollar preaching salaries. That's not real church. Real church takes place Normally, when you least expect it, with little resources from us and divine power from him. So, we see in the early church that wherever they went, it was church. Their everyday life, going to work, where they traveled, who they met, their family, that was church. Not a building, but the infiltration of Christ and the Holy Spirit in their lives, and from that flowed church. Real church. The New Testament explains real church and the everyday lives of Christ and his followers. And if you would turn with me to Mark 6, 1. I know last week Jim said we were done with Mark, but we're actually going to be back in Mark today. So I'll give you a second. Mark 6, 1. Mark 6, 1. 
And before we read, I would like to pray. So once you're there, say amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And I know I'm inadequate to be up here and speak in front of these people, but you are all powerful. And you can reveal messages and you can reveal words to people. And you know what's going on in their lives. And even if it's just one person today, Father God, if it's this service just for one person, I know it is worth it. God, change our hearts. Let your word change us. Let us be transformed by your power, your holy power. Let church be an everyday occurrence, not just a a Sunday occurrence or a Wednesday occurrence, but an everyday occurrence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark 6, 1. So if you're there, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. So Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. And just, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live here right among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except in the place, except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now, you know, Christ had to... uh, no, coming into this world and performing the mission God had given to him, that he was going to face a lot of unbelief and rejection. But I'm always astounded to think how much unbelief you must have to amaze Christ at your unbelief. And um, they asked some, some silly questions to me, but um, as Jesus and his disciples approached his hometown, Christ is about to reveal to his disciples the important lesson before he sends them out. That life following Christ is full of rejection, even in your hometown. And the silly question they asked to me is, where did he get his wisdom and power from? I mean, if anybody is speaking of the Word of God and there's power coming from it, and people are getting healed, where do you think that wisdom and power come from? It comes from God, correct? So let me tell you where I think the question came from. So knowing Jesus, growing up with his family being around him constantly. And I know many of you, if you probably went back to your childhood hometown, they would probably think, man, you're not the same. You're a lot different than what I knew of you, right? Like, I don't know who this person is. I can't relate with this person. And so maybe the, the Jesus they grew up with and the Jesus they knew is not someone they could relate with. Like, my family's more esteemed than him. How is he getting this knowledge? Where is this coming from? We, we can't make sense of this. This is not someone special that we remembered as just an ordinary person. And so I'm not going to accept this. It reminds me kind of um, when I was first talking to a group of FCA students, I was still student teaching, and um, I was praying before, and I was like, God, I'm, no, I'm nervous. I don't know what to say. You know, I don't know how to get up in front of these kids and, and what to tell them, but I had planned out stuff. But I was so nervous that as I was reading, I, I couldn't focus on the words. Like, they just got blurry. I was so nervous. And it went horribly. Like, it was terrible. It was my first time speaking in front of the kids. But 
fast forward to two years later, I, I, I don't even know who that person is. Like, I can get up here today with confidence and speak to you. And just in two short years, how much God has changed my life to put me in a platform where I would never have seen myself. I couldn't relate with that person in just two years. And so many times when you're on that journey with Christ, he's going to change you to something you never noticed before. And even the people you knew, the people in your hometown won't even recognize it. So the result was the church building of that time, the synagogue, the place where people go to get close with God, had no move of God and what we call the church. And now as we pick up in Mark 6, 7, the next verse, then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people, and he called his disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them, take nothing for your journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's back, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not take a change of clothes. So going from what we call church to the real church, we see miracles taking place in everyday life when he sends the disciples out that he had prepared. And it wasn't the clothes they wore that made them distinguished. It wasn't even one individual because he sent them out two by two. Having 12 disciples, you could have reached more people maybe going one, one each way, but he wanted it to make sure that no one person was getting the credit, that it was all to Christ and to, and to the Father, Father God. And so he made sure that they didn't take anything that could distinguish them and say, well, it's because they have resources, it's because they have this, it's because they have that. Yeah, he let them take sandals, but it wasn't like they were wearing Crocs or Nikes or anything like that, right? It was just something to cover their feet as they, they walked on the, the rocks and the dirt. And he allowed them to take a, a walking stick. And living out in the country, I actually kind of see a lot of value in a walking stick now because I have a lot of cedars out there, and I'm able to make a few. But you actually get to knock down tree limbs. You get to, you know, scare away snakes or, or stuff like that. You get to check how deep the water is. You get to knock fruit out of the tree with it. So a walking stick actually is pretty useful. And maybe before living out in the country, I wouldn't have saw that, but it can be. And even symbolically, Moses had a walking stick, and it seems like all the apostles had walking sticks. So maybe that was like a symbol for the followers of Christ back then, that they had this walking stick and nothing else, the same clothes. It wasn't what they had, but it was who was with them. And so I recently heard a sermon by Alan Redpath, and I didn't really know much about him before I heard this sermon, but it was called Beginning of the End. And he mentioned some really good points. And he said this, Christ sent sent them out, the apostles, with equipment that was not meant to be extravagant, but adequate. Right? That it wasn't meant to be this flashy thing that we have. And today I feel like the church and many churches in America have made it to this point where it's about what we have. It's about being extravagant, about showing how extravagant God is. But we were not meant to be extravagant. We were meant to be adequate, and his power was to be shown through that. And so he sent his disciples out two by two for protection. But more importantly, no one individual gets the credit. Like, everybody loves individuality. Everybody wants to say, like, I was a part of this. Like, it was me. You're good. Come on in. 
Everybody wants to say, I had, a, I had the part and I did something that was productive. Well, Christ says, well, you don't get that. It's about me. It's not about you. We're good. Another thing that uh, Redpath said is, uh, let's be clear, and he said it beautifully, God needs none of us. He doesn't need us. He will use somebody, but he doesn't need us. But he is willing to use anyone who is willing to give him everything. So he doesn't need any of us, right? But he will use anyone, any one of us in here who is willing to give him everything. And from this, he sent out the disciples, and what we saw was healing like never before, revival like never before without even a tent meeting, healing like never before without a worship service. The people, did, the people will not come to this service and listen to me speak and be changed, but they do care and they are transformed by the way we live. When we go out and have church every day with people, when we go to our job, how, what they see in us, they are transformed by Christ in us. That is the church, not this building, not meeting once a week. That is not the church. So we have to go meet them where they are with the message of Christ. We can't sit back and not get involved. And let's be honest, you may be the only Christ your friends ever see. They may never go to church. The only church they ever see is you. How you respond when things are hard. There's plenty of children that I have at the schools that don't have two parents, that don't have a good income, that don't have anything, that probably never been to church, and all they know of church is what they see on TV and these big buildings. And so the only true church they will ever see is in you. Redpath even said, if you have a core belief and it hasn't drastically changed or had an action, it can't be called valid. If you say, I'm going to have a core belief, I believe in this, but it doesn't have any change in your life, how can you call that valid? The thing you believe in your core in Jesus Christ, when he comes into you, it's going to change you. It's not going to leave you the same. No matter what your past is, no matter what you struggle with, no matter where you come from, Christ can change you. I don't care if you come from broken households. I don't care. And when I say I don't care, I don't mean I don't, I'm not empathetic for you. I'm saying that no matter where you come from, Christ can change you, your circumstance, just like that. And so, like I said, real church happens in everyday life, at work, at school, at home, at your neighbor's house. Real church happens on your lunch break, and sometimes even when you're on vacation, people will come up to you and ask you about Christ. I've never seen Christ before, and I'm reminded um, of Jesus when he heard that John the Baptist was beheaded for following after Christ, and he heard about this, and he was really close with John the Baptist, and so it hurt him deeply, and he just wanted to get away for a little bit. He said, you know, I'm hurting. Let's just take a little bit of time and get away. But the crowds followed him. And all he wanted was a few seconds, right? But he realized that they were lost. They had no shepherd. They were lost sheep, as he called them. And so he felt compassion for them. Even in his moment of own sorrow and own hardship, 
where he just wanted to get away, he felt compassion for him. And in the event of everyday life, he couldn't get away from him. He reached out to them and helped them because they had nobody. And so um, even my first experience of real church wasn't even in here in tea time. My first experience of real church with Jim Corsi was at the YMCA. Like, he was working three jobs. He, uh, I didn't even know he was a pastor when I first talked to him, but I noticed that he would come in 10 to 15 minutes early, and he would just talk to me, ask me how my day was going, how the kids were doing, and we just uh, developed this communication. And I saw Christ in him before I even knew he was a pastor and before I even knew he had a church. And so throughout this process, and when I found out he was a pastor and he was working three jobs, it changed the way I view church. It wasn't coming to a building. It was going out and reaching people. That was the church. The church is in us with Christ. And even my second experience with church, real church at Mosaic, was not at tea time, but it was at Jared and Charity's house. We had a a Bible study, a little get-together. We eat food. Before we even, probably a couple weeks we were here, Briley was like three months old, or not even three months, she was a few weeks old, I think. So that was my first few experiences of real church where we get to know each other, we get to work with each other through hardship. It wasn't about a building, it wasn't about where we met, it was about each other and fellowship. And um, as... Pastor Jim showed us in the book of Mark last week, Christ died so we could be family. Christ died so that we can be the church wherever we go. Work, school, in your house, among your family, your biological family. And it has put a conviction on me, to be honest, to make sure that I'm showing love, to make sure that I'm showing grace to others because I know it has made me and my family who we are today because I've seen it in you guys. You guys have been Christ's love to me and my family and you have changed us. And that is the beautiful thing about church is that it is us. It's the Holy Spirit in us dwelling amongst us that wherever we have contact with people, we can be the church, whether it's at a football game whether it's, you know, just on a vacation in the Cayman Islands or wherever we're going, we can be the church. And I think Christ is looking for opportunities where he can reach people that is untraditional, that is not through the TV, that is not through big sanctuaries. Because in that, we see the real love of Christ, where it's not just a ritual routine of where we go every week. And now let me be clear that there is value in us gathering here like this in a building because it builds each other up. It gets us prepared for the week ahead. But it should not stop when we leave here. It should continue throughout the week. It should continue into our everyday lives. And so no matter how much money you have, or your past, the clothes you wear, we must go out and be the church because that's when Christ takes a hold of us and changes us and heals us, just like in the Scripture. And so, um, like I said, many students that I teach, they don't have family. A lot of them have been adopted. They don't have a mom or dad. 
and they see it on TV, big church, but they can't relate with it because they don't know anything like that. They've never been anything. They just see words. And as I get ready to close here in a little bit, because as you know, I'm not a big speaker, so I'm not going to go on for an hour. But before we um, get to talk about, or before we close, I want to talk about going back to the hurricane and the response of many of these victims. They, um, you know, a lot of them lost their house. They lost their car. They didn't have gas. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have um, cell phone towers, many of them, to even have service on their cell phone. And I know that's a big one right there. But without having anything, and even the effectiveness of money in that situation, money couldn't do any good because there's nothing. You literally have nothing. But I was astounded by so many responses and in interviews that they asked, you know, um, how are you making it? What's, how's it going? Like, are you have everything you need? And a lot of people, and maybe many of you know people around the Houston area and the, and the, and the coast that have this similar response where it's, they said, I have my family, we're all okay, we can rebuild, and we thank God. I can't imagine having absolutely nothing, not even a car or gas or anything, and in an interview, they are thanking God because they have family and they're all okay. And that should go to show you the power of stuff. It's meaningless. We don't need the stuff. We need Christ. When we have Christ, that is enough. And we can have church no matter how much stuff we have or how little stuff we have. The power of God even when we have nothing. The power of Christ in us as the church, even though we are unworthy. How perfect is His love that even while we still are sinners, He loves us and He's chasing after us. No matter what we do, He's in pursuit of us. And His Holy Spirit is going to come and He's going to continue to change us in the way that we need to go. And so, um, I'm reminded also of David when he was getting pursued by Saul in the Old Testament. And he was just following what God had told him to do. He was anointed by Samuel the prophet, told him he was going to be king. And so, he's just on this roller coaster ride that God had called him upon. But here, many times in the Old Testament, he finds himself alone, abandoned, running from Saul who's trying to kill him so that he doesn't become king. Alone and having nothing in the caves, in the wilderness, not having friendship or food, having nothing. But still, we see the book of Psalms and all the praises that David gives unto God, even in those moments of hardship. And so, if you could take away one thing today, is that we are the church, and no matter where we go, we touch lives through Christ because they see Christ's love in us, and that no matter what we have or what our influence is, God can use us. I know many people think, God can't use me. I'm too small. I'm too weak. I don't have the resources. I have nothing. I can't even take care of myself, but God can use you. And I know we all are in situations right now where uh, 
we all face things, or we know someone that's facing something. And so as we close in prayer, I just want to um, lift, if you have anybody you know that's suffering something, or you yourself are suffering something, I just want you to lay it down at God's feet and say, God, I'm not big enough, I'm not strong enough, but I know you can take care of this. I have full trust in you. I'm not going to be like the people in the synagogue that I don't understand, so I'm just going to refuse to believe. I'm going to lay what I don't understand at your feet. And I know that in my everyday life, you will take care of it. You will sustain me. So let us pray. Lord God, this is the word that you have given us today. Let it not go through our ears and, and out the other, but let it be stamped on our heart so that no matter what we face, we are reminded that no matter our situation, no matter what we have, if we have much or we have little, you are there with us and you can use us to be Christ, that you can use us to spread your kingdom. Sometimes the way to this world, God, just seems too much. We don't know how we're going to make it. We just are barely stepping in front of one foot in front of the other. So right now, God, we don't understand it, but we trust you. We pray for uh, Chris and Megan that you will be with them in this time of having a baby, that he will be healthy or she will be healthy. And we know that you are working all things out for the good, even in hardship. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that the word that was spoken this morning